This event was recorded live at the 2013 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. And welcome to this, the opening day of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. And, and yes, it is our 30th anniversary edition today. My name's Nick Barley and I'm the director of this festival. And it's my great honour to welcome you here today and thank you for your support. Now, if there's one author whose work has changed the way that literature interacts with the world, one author who has changed the way we think about life and the world over the past 30 years, it must, of course, be Salman Rushdie. And it is my great honor to welcome him all the way from New York to come and talk to us today about his life and his work. Back in 1983, of course, Salman Rushdie was on the Booker Prize shortlist. And he was also on the inaugural Granter list of best of young British novelists. So um, I thought that the best person to interview him would be the then current editor of Granter, John Freeman. Since, uh, since I asked John to do it, of course, he's departed from Granter, but he too has come all the way from New York to join us. So please give a huge round of applause and welcome John Freeman and Sir Salman Rushdie. for coming. Um, the, is, is my mic on? No. How about now? As if by magic. Am I on too? Yeah. Yay. All right. Uh, let's have a moment of silence and appreciation. <laughs> um, thank you for that introduction, Nick, and thank you for coming. Um, I thought what he said was very apt because it's not just Salman's uh, work which has changed the way that we think about life, um, but the world itself has been changing so rapidly in the course of, of him writing about it. And so I thought this would be a good chance to leap in and talk about his life and his work and, and the ways in which those things re uh, reflect and mirror the changes in our world in the last 30 years. So to, this, to tell you some things you might already know, um, Salman was born in 1947 to a teacher and a businessman. He left home for boarding school at rugby and later read um, history at King's College, Cambridge, where he also drew cartoons for a then student literary magazine called Granta. Yeah, very, very bad cartoons. <laughs> very, very bad magazine, actually. <laughs> I don't work there anymore. No, uh, <laughs> no, no, it died, as you know. I mean, yeah. after that, that student incarnation died. That was after um, that bit, your last cartoon. After my last cartoon, down. I killed Granta. <laughs> and, then, and then Bill Buford brought it back to life. In 1979. Yeah. But after university, you worked as a copywriter at Ogilvy and Mager and Ayer Barker while writing your first novel, uh, Grimus, which was a science fiction tale, published in 1975. But it is his second novel, Midnight's Children, which Granta stole. Uh, we can talk about that later. Yeah. Uh, which launched him into the stratosphere of storytelling. This sprawling magical book is India's barbaric yawp. It is its Augie March, its tin drum. It's 100 Years of Solitude, and it tells the story of India's partition and transition to independence through the life and times of Salim, Salim Sinai, born at the moment of India's own entry into the world. It won the Booker Prize and the Booker of Bookers. In 1988, the publication of Rushdie's fourth novel, The Satanic Verses, earned him recognition of a less welcome time, kind 
when Ayatollah Khomeini, then spiritual leader of Iran, proclaimed a fatwa declaiming execution of the author for insults he perceived the book leveled at Islam, he didn't read the book. VSI Paul, I remember, said that he thought it was a very bad review. And, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he was making a joke. <laughs> but with, a, with a bounty on his head, Rushdie was forced into hiding for nine years. Uh, this was not just the culture wars beginning, it was the beginning of a different kind of battle over life and meaning and religion. The book inspired riots in which several people died, and Rushdie's Japanese translator was killed and his Italian translator beaten and stabbed. Shortly before the fatwa was, was briefly lifted, Rushdie moved to New York City, where Thomas Pynchon has proved you can hide in plain sight. Throughout the fatwa period, though, and after, Mr. Rushdie has published prolifically short stories, East-West, essays, including Imaginary Homelands, a kind of beautiful classic children's book, Haroon in the Sea of Stories, and it now has a sequel, um, and half a dozen more novels of grace and power and intense beauty, which have gone on to win many, many awards. And I had dinner with Thomas Pynchon. I'm the person who had dinner with Thomas Pynchon, and I know what he looks like. <laughs> and I could tell you. All this is in his memoir, uh, Joseph Anton, which takes its name from his nom de gore, which he adopted in hiding, the first names of Joseph Conrad and Anton Chekhov. It is a spirited tale of an emigrant, the memoir of someone who watched the world's battle between East and West move from theory to practice, the autobiography of a man so public we never knew him, and finally, importantly, the tale of a father. It is like so many Rushdie books, full of sound and fury, but also deeply funny with cameos made by Thomas Pynchon, but also Graham Greene, Meg Ryan, Allen Ginsberg, a dancing Gunter Grass, Elmer Leonard, Roald Dahl, Catherine Grand, Bono Pynchon, Gary Shandling, and William Styron's testicles. <laughs> So, on yeah. that note, I'd like to, to start you with... You want to start with William Styron's testicles? Why, yeah. why did you see them, and in what context? <laughs> well, I was surprised, too. Uh, no, I, went to, I went to visit him um, at his house on Martha's Vineyard, and we were sitting on the porch, you know, and, and um, having a drink, and Bill Styron wore, like, a white T-shirt and khaki shorts, the kind of uniform of the vineyard, you know, and very loose shorts. And he was sitting in his chair, sort of like this, and I noticed that there was nothing on under the shorts. And so there was kind of rather a lot of Bill Styron on display, um, which was surprising. And I thought, you know, he's elderly, he's forgotten, let's not make a big deal of it. And then I went back to see him a few days later and he's doing it again. So, so it's obviously, it was his preferred uh, form of dress. But many people, when you were in that terrible period, came out in support of you, um, sheltered you, um, not just a Styron welcoming you to, to, the, to the vineyard. Um, and I think for a long time, everyone thought you were in Bono's basement. But it turned out you were in a Jaguar with two guards and Ayrshire. <laughs> Do you well, feel at home and, and, and safe in Scotland? Well, I, I was, that was a weekend, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, and of course, the. the I learned a lot about, you know, the police force essentially is a, is a bureaucracy and, and even the special branch is a bureaucracy and so there's a British special branch, there's also a Scottish special branch. And the Scottish special branch were not, was not at all pleased that the British special branch was coming up with me to Scotland to stay at my friend's palace in Ayrshire. And so there was a kind of battle of the special branches and it ended up with both of them insisting on doing this. So there we were in this remote cottage in rural Ayrshire, 
and there was this kind of arsenal of armed, of armed, of armored jaguars outside. And the hard thing was not concealing me, it was concealing them. <laughs> because they had to be there. And the British wouldn't go away, and the, I mean, the English wouldn't go away, and the Scottish wouldn't leave the English there if they weren't there. And so there was this kind of police convention going on out there. It was, yeah. There's far more comedy in the story of, of where you hid and how you hid and how you survived this period than I expected. The Jaguar is breaking down, a guard goes to the pub and gets drunk and pulls out his gun. Um, the only time he shoots his gun is by accident. Yes. There was actually one of my, there's a bit where I was having dinner with Hanif Qureshi at Hanif's house in Shepherd's Bush in London. And when we left, one of the police officers left his gun behind, forgot his gun. I hate it when that happens. And, and you know, and, and Hanif, of course, for him, this was like a kind of transcendent moment of joy. <laughs> he, he kind of ran out in the street, holding the gun by the barrel, <laughs> waving it in the air, and going, yeah, you forgot your shooter. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, it was a comedy routine, really. The, not, not too far and away from Bombay. I mean, and this book isn't just the story of where you hid and how you hid. It's, a, it's also a deeply personal memoir about coming from the family that you did and the father that you did and becoming the storyteller you did. And, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, because your father, you describe, was a sort of amateur chronic scholar. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think anybody who's read my novels knows that they're often there are often sons who have difficult relationships with their fathers in them, and, 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 and my relationship with my father was quite difficult for a long time. But, and, and one of the things, however, that was nice writing this book was to be able to write about the other side of our relationship, which is really how much I learned from him and how much he gave me, you know, and, and how much really I am his son. You know? And he was, I mean, he was much more considerable scholar because he could he, I mean, he was, he was knowledgeable of Arabic and Persian, so he could read these texts in the original, which I can't. But know, he wasn't uh, a believer. No, no, he was completely atheistic, but he was very interested in it as a historical phenomenon. You know, and the, the, the interest he gave me was by saying that, you know, it's the only religion, Islam, that, that, um, that grew up essentially in recorded history. You know, so that, so that you actually have circumstantial information about uh, its birth of the sort that you don't have about Christianity or Judaism, etc. You know, because I mean, the Gospels are at least a hundred years after the life of Christ, whereas and and the actual you know, there's no documents of the life. I mean, it's a rather extraordinary fact that the Roman Empire, which was a very documenting organization, you know, the Roman Empire kept records of everything, um, and there's no record of anything like any event which we now recognize as being part of the life of Christ. Uh, he's not in the historical record. You know, Moses is not in the, the Exodus does not occur in the records of Egypt. You know, and again, Egypt was a fantastically recording, you know, um, uh, institution of the, the rule of the pharaohs. And yet the event of the Exodus of the Jews, you know, it's not there. Um, by contrast, Islam, it's very, very documented. You know, we know about what kind of man the prophet of Islam was, what his family circumstances were, who he married, what he did for a living. Did your father tell uh, you these stories? Yeah, yeah, and, and he made me interested in them. Uh, but from the point of view of a completely disbelieving person. I mean, put it like this. When 
Muhammad describes his own description of revelation. He describes the angel, Gabriel, as being very, very large. He says, the angel stood on the horizon and filled the sky. Right? Big angel. <laughs> so, so the question is, which my father asked me, and I guess I asked myself afterwards, if you had been standing next to him, would you have seen the angel? Right? And my view is probably not. Right? And yet, he's not telling a lie. You know, he's not making it up. And so what is that? What is that event, you know, where, uh, where he genuinely f says what he genuinely sees, you know? And I would feel that if I were standing like, like you and I are next to each other, I would not have seen the same thing. What is that phenomenon, you know? What is revelation? How does it work? And he gave me, my father gave me that interest and, and gave me some of the stories to begin with. And then I went on and studied it at university. And, and when I was at university, I came across this incident, which is, which is in the record, that this sort of temptation of the prophet incident known as the incident of the satanic verses. And, and um, as, I say in the, as I said in the memoir, I said at the time, I was still, I sort of had fantasies of being a writer. And I remember thinking, that's a good story. And you know, 20 years later, I found out how good a story it was. <laughs> I want to talk a, a, just very briefly about your time at Cambridge. Because mm. in, the, in the memoir you write, um, you write in the third person. And he's, you write, he was a migrant, um, describing uh, Cambridge and also your early years in London. Migration tore up all the traditional roots of the self. The rooted self flourished in a place it knew well, among people who it knew well, following customs and speaking its own languages. Of these four roots, place, community, culture, and language, he had lost three. Did you feel like you had to bas basically reinvent yourself through writing? No, I think you, it's, at least I initially thought that, and that's why I think, that's what I now think of as being wrong with my first novel, Grimus, you know? Um, because if it's, it's very fantasticated and not grounded, I think, you know? And, uh, and, and I think what I really, I had to do the opposite. I had to really understand who I was in order to be able to write. You know? um, and, and that took me back to India, it took me back to origins, and, took, and, you know, and that ended up being Midnight's Children. I mean, that's the short explanation of what actually took a very long time. You know? I, mean, I left Cambridge in 1968. Midnight's Children came out in 1981. I mean, that's 13 years of finding my way. You know, During which you were writing ditties for John Cleese. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, what yeah, was your best ad? Do you remember it? Well, I have one or two. You know, uh, I, I invented this campaign for Aero chocolate bars, which is you know the bubble words. You know, adora bubble. You know, irresist a bubble, <laughs> delect a bubble, <laughs> bus sides said transport a bubble. And, you know, shop windows said avail a bubble here. You know, <laughs> Trade ads said profit a bubble, you know, like that. Um, that was a long-running campaign. And I invented it because the writer I was working with had a stammer. That is cool. <laughs> it's, no, and we were sitting in a room trying to think of an idea, and he stammered. And he said, it's, it's fucking impossible. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh. <laughs> that, that ad didn't Ding run, though. It was actually my one genuine light bulb moment. <laughs> you know? 
Uh, anyway, yes. But, but in Joseph Anton, you also described when you're, as you were writing uh, Midnight's Children, you wanted to come up with a new sound, a new language, a new way of using English that felt to you as rich and noisy as, as India did to you. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I think... Is the language a home in that sense? Can be, yeah. I mean, I think certainly one of the great pleasures of the English language is its malleability. You know, so English becomes, can be shaped to many different experiences. You know, I mean, uh, Irish English, you know, American English, many different American Englishes. Totally. You know? um, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. Yeah, 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 yo. <laughs> um, Australian English, you know, South African English, etc. So English has, you know, Caribbean English and great poetry like Walcott's and so on. I, and there is a kind of Indian English which is not like English English. And I wanted to find a way of drawing on that you know, and, and trying to get that kind of rhythm into, into a prose text. I mean, most of that is oral, of course, you know, but you wanted to find, I wanted to find a sort of written down way, version of it. I mean, I was lucky enough that when I was at Cambridge, I was at King's and, and E.M. Forster was there. So I did have this extraordinary moment of, of, of getting, of, I didn't get to know him, but I, I had a few meetings with E.M. Forster. You know, and, and because he, of course, loved India so much, um, he was interested in me because I came from there and I said I wanted to be a writer. You know, so he was, he was very sweet to me, actually. And, and I enormously admired him and, and, and A Passage to India and The Hill of Devi's less well-known non-fiction book about India. Um, but I thought that it didn't sound like India to me. You know, this, this very cool Forsterian English, you know. I thought India is not like that. It's not cool, it's hot. You know, it's noisy, it's crowded, it's vulgar, it's, it's smelly. How do you have an English that sounds like that? You know, and, uh, and that's what led to Midnight Children, I guess. It's interesting because this book, uh, many of the authors who were chosen for the Best of Young British Novelist issue that came out recently, would not have existed were it not for that book. That book is the, is the beautiful door through which they walk through into their own books. And well, nice I, I, nice I sometimes think, think that, yeah. that Satanic Verses, now that we can actually read it as a novel, not that novel, yeah. I, I often look at that novel as a, a novel that also prefigures what London has become. Well, you know, one of the things I was most frustrated about in those years when there was this storm around that book um, was that it, it seemed to me to be first and foremost to be a novel about London. You know, that, that it was a novel almost entirely set in, no, in London, um, set in London at a very specific period, which is, we would now call high Thatcherism, you know, the kind of middle 1980s. Um, a time of quite considerable social upheaval, racial unrest, etc., of a kind that sort of doesn't happen in that way anymore, uh, quite, you know. And, and I remember at the time, in the 90s, I guess, reading a number of critical essays about the state of the English novel in the way that people always write that essay. And, and one of the things that people were saying about the state of the English novel is that there weren't any novels about London. And I kept saying, excuse me, you know? <laughs> there's one. <laughs> um, and because of all this other noise about the book, um, that's, that aspect of it got... Uh, 
got blurred for a while. Right. And yeah, I mean, yes, I mean, I think one of the pleasures about being at this point in the story rather than that point is that, that people are able to just read the book as a book. And I think one of the things that they see is that it's a novel about London. You got such a phenomenal amount of work done during that period. I mean, I, I look through the nine years, and, and there's six or so books. Um, Imaginary Homelands, East West, uh, Ruin in the Sea of Stories, The Moor's Last Sigh. I mean, was yeah. it, was, was, I, I do not want to suggest that. That I had a lot of time. That, yeah. <laughs> that, but how did you, did it, was it what kept you um, I don't know, I sane? just. It did help a lot, yeah. I mean, I wanted to go on being myself, and it was a way of doing that. And, but it wasn't just, it wasn't so much therapeutic as kind of bloody-minded. You know, I mean, my view is somebody wants to shut you up, you shout louder. And somebody was trying to shut me up. So I tried to shout louder. You were a judge for the Best of Young British um, issue, the second one in 1993 during that period. Yeah. And books were being shipped to your guarded house. and. You were the, 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 the champion for a Scottish writer, A.L. Kennedy. I was. Um, I was. I'm very proud of that. Um, um, we got, you know, it was, it was a very interesting, there were four very different judges. You know, there was Bill Buford, who was editor of Granter, um, A.S. Byatt, um, John Mitchison, who, was, who worked for Waterstones, and me, and we had, we had very different tastes. But interestingly, we very quickly agreed on 16 of the 20 writers. You know, we agreed on 16 of the 20 with almost no argument. And then each of us had a completely different last four. So then there was another 16 writers mm. that we somehow had to boil down to four. And that was a battle. How did you get, what was your argument for her, other than she's put her on, she's good? That was the argument. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I just thought that it was a very, what you'd look for, particularly in a young writer, and she was just her first novel or something had come out then, you know. Um, you don't look for perfection, mm. you know. I think you look for somebody who's talking in a way that nobody else is talking, you know. You look for originality, um, and you look for a distinctive voice um, that seems to come out of a place that other people's voices are not coming from, you know. And, and I thought that she was like that. You know? Is that why you once said the, to me that you don't you think the, the novel is not an ivory tower form? No, is novel that what is you mean? Yes, the novel is classically. I mean, look at the great writers of the novel. You know, if you look at the the, the 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 age of Dickens and Thackeray and so on and so on. You know, they're they're plunging their arms into life as deeply as they can go. You know, and and. Uh, they're writing about how people actually live and how, what they actually think about. Um, and, uh, and I think you can't be a novelist if you're not fully engaged in life. You know, you have to. How are you going to write about it if you don't go there? You know, um, and it's vulgar. In the, I mean, the, you know, the Latin word vulgar, the English word vulgar comes from the Latin word vulgus, which means the people. You know, vulgar is of the people. You know, and, and the novel is that. It's not esoteric. I mean, it can be. There are great esoteric novelists, but the kind of novel that I'm most interested in, anyway, let's say. Do you think, was that something that you shared with your generation, with uh, Martin Amos and? Maybe, although we didn't talk. You know, I mean, the funny thing about that, that generation is that we never thought of ourselves as a generation. You didn't have a uniform? Or we didn't have a badge or club, <laughs> you know, or secret handshake. I mean, it's not like the Surrealists, you know, who actually had a joint project, 
you know, they had an ideology. They had they had Andre Breton writing a theory, and then they had you know they had a lot of things in common they were trying to do. It's actually not even like the magic realists in Latin America, who again, you know, they they had a kind of project that they were all involved in, and we didn't feel like that. I mean, I think, you know, you think about Ian and Martin and Julian and Ish and me. You can't think of five very different. We're writers. not like each other. Yeah. You know, we're not we're not remotely like each other, and. And that 20, some of us were friends, some of us didn't know each other. And, you skipped uh, the party too, didn't you? I was away. <laughs> I skipped the photo call. There wasn't a party. Granta had more money later on. At that point, <laughs> at that point well, there was no party. You just had to show up, get your own bus ticket, <laughs> get there, have your picture taken. And then off. you can buy the copy yourself. Then you can buy the copy yourself, exactly. Well, which brings us back to them stealing the first two chapters of Midnight's Children. Yes, why don't you tell that story? Well, Buford, I met Buford at, a, at an event, at a party at Jonathan Cape, my publisher, at Christmas, just a couple of months before Midnight's Children was published. And he rather proudly produced from his briefcase this yellow copy of Granta Three. If you remember, well, you do remember, of course, Granta One was Bill had hustled all these American writers to send him work, so Granta One was all American writers. Granta Two, he persuaded George Steiner to give him this novella that Steiner had written about Hitler, and that was the whole book. The whole of Granta Two was the portage to San Cristobal by George Steiner, and Granta Three was what Bill called the end of the English novel. And the first thing in it, were the first two chapters of Midnight's Children. And he rather proudly brought it out and handed it to me. And I said, how is it that I don't know about this? You know, aren't you supposed to ask me <laughs> before you print two chapters of my book? And isn't there usually some kind of financial transaction? <laughs> and, um, and he claimed that Tom Mashler, who ran Cape, had told him it was OK. But Tom said he had no memory of that. And eventually, we negotiated a fee, which was, I think I'm right in saying, 15 pounds <laughs> for the first two chapters of Midnight's Children. So yeah, that's how I was first published. Aside from uh, stealing your manuscripts um, and later <laughs> sleeping with your wife, um, Bill, Bill was a great friend to you. <laughs> you think he's joking. He's not. <laughs> it's in the memoir. <laughs> But seriously, though, he, oh. he was procuring houses for you. And yeah, no, he was a great ally. And, and one of the great things, of course, is that everybody thought of Bill as being the most loose-tongued, gossipy person in the world. Don't trust Bill with a secret, you know? And as a result, to trust Bill with a secret was extraordinary because everybody thought that if, if he wasn't saying anything, it's because he had nothing to say. Uh, because otherwise, he would obviously blab it out. You know, and it's fa in fact, he was extraordinarily good at keeping very important secrets for me and was one of this group of people who helped me to get through this time you know i mean including many writers who you know who got out and vacated their own homes so that i could margaret drabble um, and michael holroyd uh, gave me their place to stay in for a while and james fenton gave me his place to stay in for a while and i mean it's quite something to do you know to to move out of your home so that somebody else, along with armed policemen, can come and live in it. Um, and, you know, for a long time, we never 
none of us ever said any of this. You know? and, and, and one of the pleasures of writing the book was to be able to say who did what, you know, because I think people should know. It must have, the, the experience obviously taught you something about kindness, but it seems it also taught you something about loyalty because there, as, as much as there were writers and publishers sticking up for you, there were people who, who caved a little. Yeah, but you know, I mean, you never get 100%. You know, I mean, that's the truth. And, it, uh, and I think we came pretty close to 100% in this matter. You know, and I think really the intellectual and literary communities across the world really thought that this was something that really mattered and, and, and were very supportive. I mean, there were one or two people. You know, there's famously this argument I had with John le Carré, which ended up with a correspondence sort of letters being exchanged to The Guardian. The Guardian was so delighted that it put the letters on the front page. <laughs> me being rude about John le Carré, John le Carré being rude about me, Christopher Hitchens being rude about John le Carré, John le Carré being rude about Christopher Hitchens, me being rude about John le Carré again. went on and on, and they kept trying to... I mean, there was a certain point where I wanted to stop, you know, that The Guardian would ring up and say, don't you have any more to say? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they were really enjoying it, and I think you know we. I think we both regret it, truthfully. You know, I mean, I, I, I had I knew um, David Cornwell a little bit before, you know, and I've always had a perfectly okay relationship with him, and I admire a lot of his work. And uh, I mean, I think he sort of wishes, sort of wishes he hadn't it hadn't happened. I mean, he gave a wonderful one of the great apologies, actually. He said, he said, maybe I was wrong, he said. Did you say baby or maybe? Maybe, maybe I was wrong, he said. But if I was wrong, I was wrong for the right reason. <laughs> <laughs> now, what does that mean? Anyway, never mind. I, I want to read a right. quote from East West, one of, one of my favorite stories ever, I've ever read um, about the, ruby, the, the auction of the ruby red shoes. And you, you have this line that goes, we the public are easily lethally offended. We have come to think of taking offense as a fundamental right. We value very little more highly than our rage, which gives us, in our opinion, the moral high ground. Yeah, I mean, I do think there's something, uh, I mean, that's a futuristic story, but, uh, but I do think that one of the characteristics of our age is the growth of this culture of offendedness. Um, it's got something to do with the rise of what has come to be called identity politics, you know, where, you, where you're in, invited to define your identity quite narrowly, you know, Western, Islamic, whatever it might be, these very narrow definitions. And, and classically, identity is defined, we define ourselves by the things we love. We define ourselves by, you know, by the place which is our home, by our families, by our friends, by etc. You define yourselves by love. But what's happened in this age is that we are asked to define ourselves by hate. You know, so that what defines you is what pisses you off. You know? And if nothing pisses you off, who are you? You know, you're a, I don't know, you're a liberal. <laughs> Those are dirty words in America. I know. Well, I mean, they're pretty dirty words here for different reasons. <laughs> but let's, I want to ask you about Christopher Hitchens because mm. I think he sometimes is often wrongly put in that category of, of, uh, of attack dog. Uh -huh. It seems through your whole life, you, you differed in opinion on many different things, yeah. but he obviously had a great talent for friendship because you, you remained friends throughout many well, different... Well, I think you know, anybody who's read Christopher's memoir 
will have seen that there are chapters in there about male friendship. I mean, his, his friendships with, I mean, preeminently with Martin Amis, but, but also with Fenton and with McEwen and me and, you know, three or four other people. And it's clear that that was the most important thing in his, in his life, you know, it was friendship. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's a big hole in our lives, you know. And we, yeah, we disagreed about a lot of things. You know, and one of the things about Christopher, of course, is that he was perfectly ready for you to disagree with him. You enjoyed it? Uh, well, it was very difficult to disagree with Christopher because he was very good at arguing, and and not and uh, you know gave no quarter. I mean, I remember you know Martin published that his book about Stalin, and the worst review the book got was Christopher's review, <laughs> and, and that's Martin's best friend, you know? and. Neither of them felt that their friendship was in any way damaged. I mean, that was what was kind of remarkable about Hitchens, is that you could have these savage disagreements at, in, at the level of ideas, which didn't affect your personal friendship with him, you know? And, I mean, I didn't agree with him about many things, including Iraq, for example. But, uh, and, you know, we argued about it all the time. Um, but, I, you know, I cared but I loved him you know it's a different thing I want to point out something obvious which is that um, the, the late Hitchens and Fenton and Amos and you all live in New York now or, yeah, we or left, in America yes Ian is kind of abandoned in England Why do you, having bought most of Gloucestershire <laughs> what? All the bits that aren't owned by Prince Charles, you know, owned by owned by Ian McEwan. <laughs> but what? I mean, obviously, New York and the United States is a nice place uh, yeah. for some. But why? Why do you think that your your whole group of friends, to some degree, is over there? I don't know. I mean, they're not for the same reason. You know, I mean, I, well, you know, Martin always wanted to live there. I always wanted to live there. I mean, it's what's, as we say in New York, what's not to like. Yeah, I mean it's a wonderful place to live. I mean, this is where you had lunch with Pynchon. Or this I had, had dinner. Had dinner with Pynchon. Yes, um, uh, at uh, at the house of an, another departee from these shores, publisher Sunny Meta. Um, I mean, I had reviewed Pynchon's novel, one of his novels, Vineland, in in the New York Times Book Review, and and I guess he liked the review. So he allowed it to be known that when I was next in New York, he would be prepared to entertain the idea of a, of a dinner of some kind. And so I said, I'm here. <laughs> and then there were all kinds of ground rules about where the dinner had to be and who could be there and so on and so on. And ended up with us having dinner at Sunny Mehta's apartment. Just, just the three of you? Just the three of us, yeah. Um, and it started off a little stiltedly, you know. Um, but then he kind of relaxed and became very, very chatty. And there was a moment when it was like three o'clock in the morning when, you know, your eyes were dropping. And then, and, he, and I remember there was a moment when he said, so I guess you guys are getting pretty tired, huh? And I was thinking, yes. But then I was thinking, it's Thomas Pinchot, you know, wake up. And so eventually, this evening came to, very long, very affable evening came to an end. And I thought, okay, well now we're sort of friends, now we know each other, you know, and now every so often we'll see each other. And then he never called again, ever, <laughs> ever. I mean, from that day to this, no more, boom. 
And it's, it's I don't know, it's, it's uh, I mean, he's of course famous for his, his uh, reclusiveness, but I think it's as if his need for people is fulfilled by like one of these very intense encounters, and then he doesn't need to see them ever again. You know, so. Yeah, one tall drink of Rushdie and he's done. Done, well, he's very tall. He's much taller than me. I mean, but Thomas Pinchon, I have to tell you, looks exactly like Thomas Pinchon should look, which is, which is that he's tall, and he wears kind of lumberjack shirts and blue jeans. And he has, like, Albert Einstein white hair and Bugs Bunny front teeth. <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, you know, he's very erudite, as you would expect. He's very interested in American, uh, uh, not just politics, but labor politics. He's very interested in in uh, union history and things which, you know, in, in America is not such a subject, really, on the whole. But Pinchon belonged to, there is, of course, a writer's union, but there's another writer's union to which belong all the people who write instruction manuals, you know, kind of notes. Oh, the technical writers. Yes, man. notes for use that you get inside hairdryers, things, you know. And that's because his first job was working, I think, at Boeing. In Seattle. Uh, yeah, writing that kind of you know, instruction manual. Um, and he still belongs to that union. You know? And I think they just, I don't think they even know who he is. <laughs> think, oh, there's Tom over there. He's been coming for years. Used to work for Boeing. <laughs> yeah. Has, has the time that you, that you spent in the United States, because you're, you're saturated in a different kind of language, than you are if you were living here full time or in India. Do you, do you believe it's changed your writing at all? I don't know, you tell me, you know. I mean, I, I, uh, I think the writing evolves anyway, you know. I think there's a, as we were saying about the early books, there was this, this attempt to kind of, if you like, to sort of Indianize English. And then there's a point where you think, well, I've sort of done that, I've done that. There's no, there's no more for me to discover in, in that. And, and at that point, you feel it just becomes a trick. You know, that, and you don't want to do it because it's just a trick. And so I found my writing style was developing anyway, changing. And also changes from book to book. You know, I mean, when I wrote Shalimar the Clown, I felt that the kind of nature of that subject was, which is, you know, Kashmir and all that, that it required a very deliberately stripped down prose which was almost journalistic in parts you know and and when I wrote the Enchantress of Florence because I was writing about that period the of the the Renaissance and so on I wanted to have a much more uh, baroque if you like you know writing style of the kind that was popular at the time you know the kind of books that people were I mean if Machiavelli was reading a book you know, he would be reading things like Ariosto. Um, and I wanted this book to feel like the books that the characters in the story might have read. Right. You know? and so, yeah, language just evolves all the time. You know, I don't think there's a fixed place for it. That book in The Moor's Last Side feels like you're, you're altering history to some degree the way that you were altering language. Really? I mean... <laughs> The, I mean, the, the Enchantress of Florence does take a, a, a leap oh, from historical records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, actually, there's one of the strange things about that book is that all the things that people think I made up are true, and all the things that people think are true I made up, um, and it just goes to show that 
people are easily fooled. <laughs> but it's true that, for instance, there was this genuine moment of joy when I was doing the research for the book when I discovered that I could have Dracula in the story. Because he always enhances the story. No, I mean, just, you know, there's my character journeying from the East through the Middle East and arriving in Renaissance Europe. And at one point, she's in the kind of Ottoman world. And there was genuinely a moment at which the Ottoman Empire was at war with Dracula. You know, um, and there was such an expedition of that Ottoman army that went into Romania, into Transylvania, to, to fight Dracula. And I thought, you know, even without cheating, I can have Dracula in my novel. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just completely joyful. So there he has a scene. He has a scene. Did you ever become irritated because post-89, uh, the, the you, you're frequently asked to comment on this idea of East meeting West in our newly globalized world. Yeah. Did you ever feel like reminding people that the East and West met a long, long time ago? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, been, it's, it's sort of become a cliche of our time, this, this supposed culture clash, which actually has been taking place for centuries. And, and one of the things I've always felt, see, if I, if I, I mean, I grew up in, in Bombay, um, which is a city that the British built in India. You know, it's not an ancient Indian city. It's not like Delhi, you know, which has been there for thousands of years. There was nothing there. There was fishing villages. Um, the British acquired it as part of the dowry that came with Catherine of Braganza when she married Charles II. Um, and they built a fort. They reclaimed land between these seven islands in order to create the um, Manhattan-like peninsula in which the city was then built. Um, so it's a, it's a western city built in the east. You know? So if, if you grow up in that city, you are aware of culture as being mixed long before you ever, you don't have to leave India, you know, there it is, the mixture is there in the fabric of the city, you know. Um, and um, so I always grew up thinking of East and West not as separate things, you know, as being, as being part of the same thing. Um, and I think a lot of my writing has tried to, in a way, celebrate that, you know. Um, but clearly one of the things that has happened in, in, you know, in this period that we're talking about is that people have come to have a rather darker view of that engagement. You know? and, uh, and then I, mean, I think one has to write about that too. You have to take that on too. But one of the reasons for writing The Enchantress of Florence was to, to talk about, if you like, you know, what Steven Spielberg would call first contact. You know, the, the, the 16th century is the moment at which um, Europe and India first met each other. You know, um, late 15th century is when Vasco da Gama arrived in South India looking for spices. Um, North India, there was very little contact. There were few Western travelers who showed up in, in India. Um, people were just, I mean, if you think about the, the Grand Mughal, the Emperor Akbar, whose reign was exactly contemporaneous with Queen Elizabeth I. Um, exactly, and more or less to the year. They had no contact. And I thought, suppose they did. You know, I mean, that's the wonderful thing about fiction. You can make the thing happen that didn't happen and see what would have happened if it had happened. Mm. You know? 
And, and so, because the thing that never happened at that time, there were these occasional journey, j wanderers coming, as happens in my novels, a traveler coming from Europe into, into India. The thing that never happened were journeys from India into the West. Uh, there were one or two journeys as far as, uh, as far as the Islamic holy cities, Mecca and Medina. There were a few people who went on, on pilgrimages that far. Very few people, or a few people, but nobody further than that, as far as one knows. Not a single Indian traveler arriving in, in, in Europe. So I thought, we can make that happen. <laughs> and, and so that was, so, but it was deliberately an attempt to try and see these two cultures, Renaissance Europe, Mughal India, both at cultural pinnacles, you know, both ha having extraordinary moments in, in their history from which much of what we now think of as the modern world flows. You know? uh, I mean, the idea of the, of the individual human self is something that was being de developed in Florence at this time. You know? Um, the idea of the paramountcy of the individual. You know? um, very similar ideas about philosophy, art, even literature, you know, were present in these two cultures that never met each other. And were happening, and it was happening at the same time. And I thought, you know, let's just what, see what happens if they actually do meet. You know? So, I mean, I think that cultural engagement is just... I mean, it's been the theme of my work, really. And I think we now live in this famous village of a, of a world, and, and we can't avoid it. You know, it's just whether you like it or not, it's there. And unlike so many of us who have Facebook pages and Twitter feeds and live in a world in which we are famous, you are actually famous. So uh, traveling and rival is complicated. And I, I, I wonder, one of my favorite books of yours is The Jaguar Smile, and I, I wonder if, if travel writing, if, if journeying in any way is possible for you anymore. Yeah, because you know, nobody knows who a novelist is. It's, 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 it's fine. You, can, you, can show, you just have to show up somewhere which, is, which isn't where people don't read the New York Post you know, or, or the British tabloids. Arkansas. For example. <laughs> for example. Yeah, I mean, I remember talking of which. There was a moment back in the day when I, got, I was going to have my meeting with President Clinton for fatwa-related reasons. And the night before I went to DC to meet Clinton, I had a dinner with Norman Mailer and, and his wife, Norris Church Mailer. And Norris said to me, she said, oh, well, if you meet Bill, say hi, because um, she explained that when he had run for his first electoral run for office, when he was running for governor of Arkansas, she had worked for his campaign. And, and she said, yeah, so I worked for him, and, and you know, we got to know each other really well. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay, Norris, well, I'm going to talk to the president, and if it comes to it, yes, I'll mention that I said hello to you. She said, no, no, you don't understand. We got to know each other very well. <laughs> I said, okay. So that I go to the White House, and I have my meeting with Clinton, and at the end of the meeting, I say, oh, by the way, I saw Norris Church Mailer last night, and she says hello. And he says, oh, yeah, Norris, we got to know each other very well. <laughs> <laughs> so, there we are. Uh, well, on that note, I think I'm gonna, I'd like to open it up to questions from the audience. There are microphones circulating on the left uh, and the right. There's a gentleman on the far left who could answer, ask a question. Hi. 
Uh, was there any particular reason you chose to write Joseph Anton in third person rather than first? Yeah. Um, yeah, there was. Um, partly, I just didn't like the first person. I mean, I, I obviously started writing the book in the first person because it's an autobiography, and I thought that's what you do. And I just didn't like the tone. I didn't something about the tone of voice of it that I didn't like. And then I tried the passage in in the third person. I thought, just treat yourself as a character. And I immediately found it easier to write, you know, um, just to have that one little step away from myself um, was, was helpful, you know. And I mean, I also then came to think of another bunch of reasons for it, but one was that I felt that the me writing the book now is a little bit different than the me about whom I'm writing then, partly because I'm much older, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's a when the fatwa happened, you know, I was 41, and now it's 25 years later. Um, so I'm writing about a, a much younger self, and also a self under a kind of colossal and often kind of deforming kind of pressure. Um, and so I wanted to say, you know, yes, of course it's me, but it's also in a kind of odd way a little bit not me, you know, and just to make that distinction between the person I'm writing about and the person doing the writing was just helpful, I thought. Hi. Um, I'm a great fan of Midnight's Children, have been ever since it came out. And unsurprisingly, when Satanic Verses came out, I also wanted to buy a copy. But at the time, I lived in Bradford, and not a single bookshop would stock it because of threats of firebombing and so on. And there was also, obviously, the, the demonstration where um, the, your book was burnt. And I was very shocked by those events. And I, I felt, even though um, you know, I'd lived in Bradford for quite a long time and felt familiar with the communities there, it, it was a very shocking event. And I just wondered whether you had any kind of premonition of what was going to land on your head. I mean, the answer to that is no. Um, but I had. I mean, look, people who were conservative Muslim believers had not liked any of my books. You know, they, hadn't, they hadn't liked Midnight's Children or Shame either. And so I expected them not to like it. You know? and, and my view about that was, so what? Um, it's not compulsory to read a novel. No, it should be. <laughs> Especially, you know, if it's by me. Um, <laughs> Purchase should be compulsory, I think, but that's, that's a whole other argument. Let's sideline that for a moment. That's about the future of literature. Um, fascist publishing ordering us, you, to buy a certain amount of books a year. I think that would be good. Um, but in, in this, you know, in general, I thought, if you don't want to read a book, don't read it. You know, if you, I mean, that's, that's, that's why there are all these books in bookstores. You can go in and choose the books you want to read. And if you start reading a book and you don't like it, you know, you just you have the always have the option of shutting it. You know, at this point, it loses its capacity to offend you. Um, so my view was, yes, there are going to be people who don't like my books. There always have been people who don't like my books, you know, for one reason or another. And I've just always felt fortunate that there are enough people who do like my books you know, for me to be to be able to go on working as a writer. That's what I expected. I expected that there'd be some people who wouldn't like it, and I thought. Okay. Um, nobody had expected what happened. I mean, in fact, I think 
had I told you on the day the Satanic Verses was published what was going to happen, you would have thought I was crazy because there had not been such an event around a book, you know, kind of ever, really. Um, international terrorism leveled against translators, publishers, and writers. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't something that we knew about. You know? So, no, very hard to have foreseen it. I, you know, and I wish it hadn't happened. And one of the few things that I thought was cause for optimism, if you like, is a couple of years ago when it was the 20th anniversary of, of the Bradford book burning and all that. Um, there were newspapers, British newspapers did quite a bit of a kind of retrospective and went and interviewed a lot of the people who back in the day had been involved in organizing those things. And all of them regretted it. You know, I mean, everybody that was interviewed regretted it. I mean, they regretted it for different reasons. Some of them regretted it because they felt it was uh, tactically bad. It had backfired. It hadn't, hadn't got them the results that they wanted. Some of them regretted it because they had kind of accepted the free speech arguments and so on. But I mean, what was interesting is that they all said that we wouldn't want to do something like that again. So I think, you know, that's something. I mean, whatever that means. There we go. Do you walk around safely just now? Do you walk around looking over your shoulder at all? I don't know. Or do you feel that everything that has been lifted has been lifted? I think you, you guys don't look that dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it's probably all right in here. There's a question on the row. Oh, there, yeah. I was interested in what you said about how we define ourselves by hatred or what offends us. And do you have any views how did that came about? Um, gosh, that's, I mean, it's really a long quest answer, but um, partly it has to do, I mean, if you set aside the religious thing for a minute, I mean, one of the things that happened with the, with the, uh, at the end of communism um, uh, and the fall of the wall and so on, is that we for a moment thought that the world was about to become a better place. You know, because these uh, these repressed countries were going to be able to rejoin the community of nations, you know. and what seemed to instead happen is that removing the kind of uh, terrible claustrophobic world of communism opened the door to kind of older, more kind of atavistic enmities and hatreds, kind of tribalisms, and uh, you know petty nationalisms and so on sort of came, came back to life. And so suddenly, you know, when there wasn't a Tito imposing Yugoslavia on that part of the world, suddenly we discovered that the Serbs, Croats, and Bosnians hated each other all over again, you know? And so instead of there being like one iron curtain, there became lots and lots of little enclaves, you know, with, with people um, fighting to death about their own little mindset, you know, or their own tribalism. You know? So I mean, that's one of the things that happened. And then, and then religious fanaticism happened, which you know is not only Islamic. You know, in, in India, uh, as you know, there's also a very powerful um, what's called Hindutva, the the rise of Hindu nationalism, um, and and in America, the enormously increased power of the Christian Church. You know, uh, uh, so there are all these phenomena and you put them together and that creates this 
the time we live in. You know, I mean, that's the short answer. There's one final question that we can take, and then I think um, we're going to have to wrap up. And um, Salman Rushdie will be signing books in the tent around the corner to the left. So, um, what's the final question? Thank you so much for everything you've said. Very interesting. The question I had was about uh, how you assess the new writer. Um, you said you were looking for that distinctive voice. I was just wondering how a, how a writer gets a distinctive voice, especially for a first novel. Is there something about unique about that personality, or have they cultivated it? Because it seems to me the more you read, the less likely you are to develop your own uh, distinctive voice. I'd be very interested in how you do it. I don't know, I mean... <laughs> um, okay, in, in 40 words or less. Um, Someone can tweet this. <laughs> No, I mean, I, I just think that the people who are real writers have an interesting relationship to language. You know, they just do. Um, I mean, I've just been reading, I was waiting for you in the green room, and I was reading Zadie Smith's most recent novel. You know, and and uh, it's quite clear that the way in which she uses English uh, is, is, comes out of her whole life experience in Wilsdon, you know, um, and, and it's very unusual, you know, I mean, nobody else writes quite like Zadie. And, and I mean, I'm you know, one of the lucky people who got to see a White Teeth in manuscript before it was published. And it was quite clear to me, reading a hundred pages of this, this girl who was like 20 years old, you know, I thought, how the hell does somebody who's 20 write like this? Um, but it's because she had a particular life experience which had, conv which had translated itself into a particular relationship with, with language, you know, and uh, I think it's very hard to teach that. It's very hard to teach that. I mean, that's the bit that kind of is, is a given, you know, and, uh, and that's there in the first novel. You know, it's there in the first novel. I mean, Ian McEwan's voice was present in the first short stories he wrote, you know. I mean, Martin Amos's voice was present in the Rachel papers, you know, and, and these were writers in their early 20s at the time, you know, so, so, um, yeah, I mean, that's what you look for. Well, Salman Rushdie, you're given gifts that have given us so much. Thank you for coming. Um, he'll be signing next door. Thank you for coming and welcome. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.